Hello and happy Sunday. Uh, my name is Corey and today I'll be sharing my vice verse. My vice verse has really affected the earnesty uh, in which I worship. And I really don't say that lightly because it's taken me from a man who understands the gospel up here and now into a man that feels it here. And is genuinely sometimes brought to tears just when reflecting on the way that Jesus has saved me. So hold on to your seats because these verses might be jarring at first. I'm reading from Romans 3, 10 to 18, where a man named Paul is describing the, the righteousness or moral goodness of everyone. So here we go. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now you might think, why pick a verse that is so discouraging and self-deprecating? <laughs> well, it might look that way on the surface, but let me tell you, there's a richness that I've experienced from actually letting the truth that I am devoid of goodness humble me and then in turn affect the way that I thank and praise God who has saved me from such a desperate situation. So the first thing that these verses do is um, they humble me. I think I need to be reminded of these verses because uh, I have a tendency to think I'm a pretty good person. I love rules and I'm a perfectionist, which is a recipe for disaster. I love rules so much that uh, for fun, on any given weekend, I'll be uh, reading board game rules. <laughs> you can ask my wife, after I've you know, read them for about an hour or two, I'll rush into our room and try to explain to her the complexities of all these layers of rules and how they create these cool puzzles and tough choices for you and your friends who are trying to you know, play against the game and play against each other. You know, I won't bore you guys with any more like I bore my wife sometimes explaining these things, but I love rules. Similarly, as a perfectionist, you know, I just think there is a way that things should be. I work as a web designer, and so oftentimes this ends up looking like me shifting a line over by one pixel just to make it perfect. You know, or spending maybe an hour or two longer than I should on a, a site architecture diagram, you know, just to make sure it's bang on. The problem is, is that for all these rules I love and you know, all these good deeds that I do, the Bible actually tells me that these are stained with sin. Right? The book of Isaiah actually describes our good deeds you know, as, as these filthy garments, these filthy rags. If those are our good deeds, <laughs> you know, I certainly also don't follow the rules to my own chagrin. And even my own standard of perfection that I have for myself, I don't measure up to it. I don't measure up to the, the standard of perfection that I set for myself. 
So how much more do I not measure up to the perfection of the God of the universe? If he is absolutely, infinitely perfect, then I absolutely and infinitely miss the mark. But here's the good news, right? Paul continues on in Romans uh, 3, 21 to 24. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I like to think of my vice verse as the in-your-face, edgy cousin to for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The understanding of this truth helps to bring me low. And it would leave me there if I didn't understand and hear about Jesus chasing after us and saving us. You know, it's his righteousness as a gift. So my filthy rags, uh, he gives me his cloak, his spotless white cloak. So instead of leaving me in this low place after reading that, you know, my throat is an open grave and the venom of asps is under my lips, I read about Jesus' incredible rescue and I'm humbled. I'm saved no thanks to anything that I've done. and All the credit and glory goes to Jesus. Which brings me to my next point is actually understanding my own sin helps me understand that Jesus gets all the credit. Oftentimes, religion is pictured as, you know, building a bridge over a, a chasm to enlightenment or some type of salvation, a stairway to heaven, right, where we are doing the building most of the time. But Christianity really flips this on its head and says, actually, you know, you are these dead bones by this massive chasm, incapable of doing anything, let alone bridge building. And Jesus was on the other side. He built that bridge to us and he raised us to life and he carried us back over that bridge to a relationship with him. All we had to do was say yes to a piggyback ride. Another illustration that uh, really stuck with me through the years is one from a guy named Tim Keller. It goes something like this. Imagine you had to leave your house for you know a few weeks, you were going away and you got your friend to watch your place for you. You come back and uh, your friend says, hey, while you were away, a bill came in and I paid it for you. Don't worry, you don't have to pay me back. How do you thank a friend like that? Well, I guess it depends on how big the bill was. <laughs> you know, if it was the newspaper boy that had come by and it was a buck or two, you know, you might just say thank you and leave it at that. If it was a phone bill, you know, maybe you say, hey, thanks, you know, the next few lunches are on me. If it was your mortgage payment, all right, well, you might start to be in awe at such kindness. But what about if it was a bill from the government, you know, $10 million in back taxes that you could never hope to pay back in a lifetime? How do you thank a friend like that. You see, it seems to me that there's this 
the relationship between how much we've been rescued from something and how much we thank. Right? If we thank we've been, if we think we've been rescued a little, then we're going to thank a little. But accurately in, in our circumstance, if, if we understand and know that we have been rescued from this unpayable debt, then our thankfulness should be unending, overwhelming. Right? And our attitude towards our Savior should be one of love and joy from being set free from this massive debt that we had no hope of paying. The Bible describes that the wages of sin, or you know, the just deserts for our moral failure, is actually death, which is way worse than back taxes. So have we let this truth sink in? Have we let it shape the way that we thank God? You know, I know it's not, you know, a fun thing to dwell on sin and death. <laughs> it's not easy. But if we just catch a glimpse of how big this problem is for us, then maybe, just maybe, we can catch a glimpse at how good God is. Understanding my own sinfulness has actually helped me Worship, which is my last point, right? Understanding our sin helps us worship. If I have a view of myself as a good person, then I only need a little bit of saving. And God might just become, you know, the sky buddy who is my insurance policy and the top up for my own righteousness. But accurately, if I remember my low place, this place of humility, then I have all this room to worship and praise God for what he's done for me. You know, Jesus is not my insurance policy. He is the only thing that I cling to that makes me worthy of eternity. Right? It was his righteousness, my filthy rags. He gave me his cloak, spotless white cloak. Without him, there's nothing. There's not a hope at all that would save me from the wages of sin, my just deserts. So for those of us who are Christians, how can our worship, praise, and, and love for others be stale or disingenuous if we remember this? I mean, we've probably sung it a, a hundred times. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How, how, when was the last time that you dwelt on wretch? <laughs> it's not comfortable. Right? But the truth of the matter is, is that while we were still sinners, while we were still that wretch, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. That's not our job. That's, that's what Jesus does. He cleans us up, and we just have to go to him. So I would encourage you today, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, and you're maybe just waiting you know, to get a little bit cleaned up, then I pray that you realize that that's Jesus' job. Our job is just to turn to him, and he's waiting. There's never been a better time than now. He loves you as you are, but he doesn't leave you as you are. He'll transform your whole life. So in closing, the next time we come across a verse like this, I want to encourage us, lean into it. Don't be discouraged by it. Don't skip over it. 
allow it to, to make you be in awe of the God who would save us from such a desperate situation. And then turn that realization into worship, adoration, and praise of the God who loves us so deeply.